Okay, so I thought uh, today we would just begin with reading the 21st prayer and let that be our motivation. Because if this doesn't motivate us, then nothing will. Okay, so think about what you're saying when you're saying it and uh, let it transform the mind. Honoring in all ways the Buddhas, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and also the Bodhisattvas, in them I take refuge and pay homage to those worthy of homage. I turn away from all negativity and embrace all kinds of merit. I rejoice in all the merit amassed by all sentient beings. With bowed head and palms together, I beseech all perfect Buddhas to turn the wheel of Dharma and remain as long as beings remain. Through the merit of doing this and the merit I have done and will do, may all sentient beings be endowed with unsurpassed bodhicitta. May all sentient beings have immaculate faculties and transcend the unfree states. May they control their own actions and live by right livelihood. May all embodied beings have jewels in their hands and may a limitless amount of all kinds of necessities remain inexhaustible for as long as cyclic existence endures. At all times, may all women become supreme persons. May all beings be endowed with intelligence and legs. May all beings have a good complexion and also a good physique. May they be radiant and pleasant to behold. Free of illness, may they be strong and live long. May they all gain expertise and skillful means and become free of all dukkha. May they become devoted to the three jewels and have the great treasure of the Dharma. May they be adorned with love, compassion, joy, equanimity in the face of hardship, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. Thus adorned, may they complete all collections and obtain brilliant signs and marks. May they traverse without hindrance the ten grounds to the inconceivable. May I also become adorned with these good qualities and all others as well. May I become free of all faults and may I attain supreme love of all beings. May I perfect the virtues to which all beings aspire and may I always dispel the dukkha of all embodied beings. In all worlds, may all beings who are feeling anxious due to danger become completely fearless merely by hearing my name. From seeing and thinking of me and from merely hearing my name, may beings become clear-minded, undisturbed, and at ease. May it be definite that they will awaken, and in all future lives may they attain the five super-knowledges. In all ways, may I always do what brings benefit happiness to all beings. May I always dissuade all at once all those beings of any world who intend to engage in negativity without doing them any harm, like the earth, water, wind, and fire, medicinal herbs, and the trees in the wilderness. May I always freely be an object of enjoyment by all beings as they wish. May I be beloved of beings, and may they be more beloved to me than myself. May I bear the results of their negativities, and may they have the results of all my virtue. 
As long as there is even one sentient being somewhere who is not yet free, may I remain in the world for that being's sake, even if I have attained peerless awakening. If the merit of making such statements were to be material, it would not fit into the world as grains of sand of the Ganges. This is what the Blessed One said, and the reason is here to be seen. The worlds of beings are immeasurable, and the intention to aid them is likewise. Last week we finished talking about the, these 20 verses from Nagarjuna, and um, we're starting now on a new section that are, consists of Nagarjuna's um, closing words of advice. Yeah, so kind of summing up uh, the important points and saying some important things that haven't been said before. So the first thing he talks about is four practices. Okay, so that's for verse 488 and 489. This concludes my brief explanation of the Dharma to you. So he's talking to the king here. Always consider this Dharma to be beloved to you. Just as you are beloved to yourself. So just as you cherish yourself, cherish the Dharma. And then he says, Those who consider the Dharma to be beloved are truly holding themselves as beloved. For if one wants to benefit those whom one loves, one can do so by means of the Dharma. Okay, so not on, this is telling us not only to hold our own lives dear, uh, which we always do and we think is the most important thing, but if we really cherish our own lives and cherish our own happiness, then we'll definitely cherish the Dharma because practicing the Dharma is what helps us create the cause for happiness, helps us create the cause for higher rebirth and highest good, the highest good. And then he says if we want to benefit those whom we love, we can do so also by means of the Dharma. So if we think of the people that we really care about, we may have attachment to them or whatever, but if we really want to benefit them, the best way is by helping them in the Dharma. So that means not asking them to get involved in destructive actions for our benefit, not asking them to lie to cover up our, our problems or to you know uh, discourage them from going on retreats or making offerings or things like that, but really to encourage them to create virtue and to teach them the Dharma in whatever way is possible. So that doesn't mean we have to sit down with our relatives and say, okay, you know, first point of the four points is this and second point. No, but uh, I, for example, I have one friend and her sister uh, was a Jehovah's Witness. So she couldn't talk about the Dharma directly with her sister, but she left some Dharma books lying around, and her sister, I guess, one day picked something up and said to her later, oh, you know, we have a lot of values in common. So that was a very skillful way to do it, to expose her sister to the Dharma. Yeah, so there's many kind of things like this we can do to help the people uh, that we care about. Many people ask me how they can help the deceased ones. And 
I, I always wish they had asked how they can help their loved ones, why their loved ones were still alive, because it's much easier to help them when they're alive than help them after they've died. Yeah, because when they're alive, then you can give them things to read, you can take them to teachings, you can talk about problem solving from a Buddhist viewpoint without using any Buddhist language. You can engage in, you know, if you have relatives who are interested in science, discussions about what is the mind, what is the brain, what is the relationship between the two. So there's all kinds of ways to help people while they're still alive. After they're dead, you can, you know, you make charity of their possessions and you dedicate the merit for their benefit. You do virtuous actions and dedicate the merit for their benefit. But that's more an indirect way of helping them. The real way to help them is when you can encourage them to do virtue while they're still alive. Yeah. And there are many ways to do this. Uh, when I was talking with, when Jan Willis was here, I was telling her when I lived in Singapore, there was one young man who, um, uh, he's, he was actually responsible for uh, helping me to write I Wonder Why, which later became Buddhism for Beginners. So he was one of the very first people I met in Singapore, very lovely young man, who had a brain tumor. And so I wrote to Zopa Rinpoche and I said, what practices should he do? And Rinpoche sent back a bunch of practices. And when I told this young man, he was not interested in at all in doing them. It was kind of like, well, I'm working, I have a lot of things to do, can you teach me those things later? Uh, so, you know, there wasn't anything I could do. But one of the things that was recommended was doing uh, animal uh, liberation. So in Singapore, it's very easy to do that because they have all kinds of wet markets with fish and worms and lobsters and you name it, they eat it. And so it's easy to buy animals and then search out a place where they can live without harming others and then liberate them there. And uh, so I knew if I told him, you know, please go liberate animals, again, he wouldn't do it. So I said to him, I want to go do some animal liberation. Will you accompany me and drive me to get the animals and go to the ponds and go to the sea and everything. That he would do. Yeah? Because we had a very nice relationship. So he would do something for me, but he wouldn't go do animal liberation for his own benefit. Yeah? So we went out a few times and we got different beings and, you know, of course, then I had the prayers and he had to say the prayers with me while I was saying them and the mantras and so on and so forth. And so that's how I got him to do something virtuous. Yeah. He still died, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So I often think of him, you know, kind of where, wonder where he was reborn because we had a very nice connection. So anyway, so help help people try and help them when they're alive and help them also after they pass away yeah help them any way you can okay and then verse 490 so this i'm going to uh, change the the order of the lines so that it reads a little bit differently so which i think is clearer just as you are devoted to yourself be devoted to the dharma 
Just as you are devoted to the Dharma, be devoted to correct practice. Just as you are devoted to correct practice, be devoted to wisdom. And just as you are devoted to wisdom, be devoted to the wise. Okay? So we start out, just as you are devoted to yourself. So this acknowledges that we cherish ourselves more than anything else in the world, despite having recited the ten uh, the 20 verses beforehand, one of which says, may I take on all the others' uh, negativity and give them all my virtue. So despite that, Nagarjuna knows that still the king and the rest of us, you know, if you really want to get to us, just as you are devoted to yourself, start there. Okay? So it's just as we want to be happy, then what do we do to create the causes and conditions for happiness? Be devoted to the Dharma. Okay? So practice the Dharma. So what does that mean? Yeah? That, that means that we study it, we reflect on it, we put it into practice. Yeah? It does not mean that we um, go about doing all sorts of things that look like Dharma practice, but without changing our mind at all. Yeah. which is actually uh, very easy to do, isn't it? Yeah? I mean, you put on certain clothes, you get, a, you know, an altar in your house, and you have lavish altar offerings, but the mind is completely, you know, back in with the, with the dinosaurs, okay? Yeah? Like, I'm wearing these robes, so you should treat me special. Look at my lovely altar. Do you notice how rich I am that I can buy these things? Do you see all the lovely offerings I have put there? Do you see how devoted I am? And, of course, the peak, the picture of our teacher with me that he signed, dedicated to me. You know, so do you know how important I am to the teacher? And then, of course, you know, all the other little kinds of things that we do. We go out and we give talks, you know, and then afterwards we're, we're very interested in, you know, kind of what people talk, said about the talk. Did they like it? Did they not like it? Are they saying good things about me? Yeah. Did they give me a lot of donations? So, you know, we see the, the mind gets quite contaminated. So here, you know, if we're devoted to ourself, be devoted to the Dharma and banish the eight worldly concerns, which really make our practice, which totally corrupt our practice. Okay? So in other words, really be sincere. Okay? So then, just as you are devoted to Dharma, be devoted to correct practice. So correct practice means having the correct motivation, which we just talked about. But it also means really listening to the teachings and understanding them correctly and, and practicing them the way they were taught. Yeah. Uh, so we, we get all sorts of um, different questions. I remember when I was at Copan, uh, you know, people would say, oh, Lama, uh, you gave us the Chenresi empowerment, but, you know, I like to think of, you know, Michael Jackson. 
<laughs> or, you know, I like to think of Jesus, or I like to think of visualize this, this, you know, or Chenrezig's wearing all these silks, and, you know, silks come from from worms who have to die, so can I dress Chenrezig in cotton instead? And I really don't like these rainbow-colored things, you know, can he wear the latest fashions? And, uh, you know, I mean, people, we would ask the most incredible questions, you know, and somehow want to, um, you know, make the Dharma be what, what we like it to be, yeah. Or, or Lama, you talk about emptiness, you know. Can we think emptiness is, you know, and then we go off on our, th- our own philosophy and don't listen to, to what our teacher says, okay? So, you know, practicing the Dharma correctly means actually listening and taking what we hear to heart and then checking it by discussing it with others, by listening to teachings repeatedly, by thinking about them so that we can make sure we have a, a good understanding and then practicing them correctly without, you know, kind of cherry-picking. Yeah, yeah. we're supposed to do 100,000 Vajrasattva mantras, you know, and I know you said that, that, that we do 10%, so it's 111,111. Um you know, is there a way that maybe we can subtract 10% so it's only, you know, this amount? And, uh, you know, do I have to say it on the same seat? Uh, can, can I do, sometimes can I do the short Vajrasattva mantra? And sometimes, uh, you know, I'm meditating on Vajrasattva, but then I start ch- chanting Chenrezi mantra. Can I still count the, those as Vajrasattva mantra? <laughs> you know, people ask the most amazing questions. Yeah, some of those people are asked, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, but to, to, you know, to really try and, and practice correctly. Okay? Then just as you, as you were devoted to correct practice then be devoted to wisdom. So if you really do your practice correctly, yeah, then you will attain wisdom, you will gain these realizations. And so practice with a sincere motivation, wanting to do that. Um, not just, you know, yeah, okay, I have this, you know, oh, I take refuge with the three jewels, and I confess all my negativities, and uh, yeah, I rejoice. Yeah, what am I rejoicing at? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw um, this great show last night. I rejoice at that. And uh, then I, you know, and okay, um, you know, so be devoted to correct practice, do our practice sincerely, and do it in a way so that we actually gain realization so that we're not doing Mickey Mouse. And then, just as you are devoted to wisdom, be devoted to the wise. And so the wise here means our spiritual mentors, um, because we must rely on spiritual mentors in order to learn the teachings and in order for to receive the guidance that we need uh, to practice correctly. Yeah, so that we don't kind of veer off here and veer off there and make what Lama Yeshe used to call soup. Yeah, you know soup? Soup is good. You make good soup. 
you know, you put in some carrots and some celery, some beans and some this and many different things. Yeah? So you put in a little of Kabbalah, and you put in a little Sufism, and you put in uh, a little of secular Buddhism, and then you put in a little of, of uh, you know, uh, evangelical Christianity, and then you put in some Catholicism, and you su- su- stir it all up, and it all comes to the same point. Yeah. And you have no idea what that same point is. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Me, yes, yes, what makes me feel good. Imagine that. Okay, so we need, you know, somebody who's going to teach us so that we know how to practice correctly and who will steer us back on track when we start going off track. Okay, so those are the four practices, which are the first thing that Nagarjuna tells us as kind of his summing up advice. Then the second thing is relying on a spiritual mentor. Now, where in the Lam Rim does this topic come? At the beginning. Where is it in Precious Garland? At the end. Okay, now why is that? Why do you think... Yeah, in the long room, it's at the beginning. At Precious Garland, it's at the end. I have. I think it's because of his audience, mm-hmm. possibly. Um, I think he, the king, was sort of interested, but maybe by listening to all of the, the instructions, the Dharma. First of all, that will engender some kind of, um, wish and motivation to actually go out and get some of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then what about? Why do you think? In the Lam Rim, it comes first. Um, I think it, it the in order. I think it's because that is the, from the Guru. That is where you the instructions come from. So um, I guess from from a lot. I always seem to think that um, studying Lam Rim is I'm already there. I'm already, you you got me at hello kind of thing and mm-hmm. that's where I need to, to I, I'm there and I'm ready to, to hear um, I've, I think there's a sutra that says fi- find someone who you um, can trust and you th- want to emulate and you've, you've already observed them and you think that that's pretty good stuff I want some of that mm-hmm. so you're motivated already before you begin mm-hmm. um, so what I've heard um, one reason that it may be at the beginning is that for the folks who wrote it, um, dates on cup and stuff, um, he was already speaking to people who may have had more of a Buddhist worldview already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so always kind of already having that kind of view, um, you might be thinking, oh, if I had someone to really help steer my mind in the right direction, um, then you might already be more open to having a teacher. So. Yeah. Okay, so you two kind of said the same thing in some, some sort of way. Yeah. So I, I think that is, is correct. I think that hits the point in that a teacher who started the, the Lamrim tradition from where it stems, and then, of course, Jason Kappa wrote a Lamrim, Gampopa wrote one, Patra Rinpoche, there's many Lamrim texts. Um, they were writing to 
Tibetans who were already Buddhist. Yeah, and like His Holiness says that you know Buddhist, Buddhism had already come there. People had become Buddhist. There, the whole population. There were a few Muslims in Tibet, but aside from a few Muslims, everybody was Buddhist. Okay, so nobody had questions about well, how do you combine this with uh, this religion or that religion? Um, at the beginning, when Bon was there, those questions may have arisen, and so you see that there was some uh, mixture between Bon and Buddhism, yeah, or some, uh, I don't know if you say mixture, but Bon adapted certain things from Buddhism, Buddhism adapted certain things from Bon, and so that kind of already happened, yeah, and there was nobody kind of going around saying, why should we believe this, and who are these people, and what do they want from us, and what does it all mean, and how do we know Buddha exists? Nobody was asking those questions. They were all Buddhist. Okay, so like you said, you know, there are people who kind of, they, they have some background, so they showed up and they said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to learn now. Yeah, and so then... For those people, okay, if you're ready to learn, you already have some faith and confidence in Buddhism. You have some awareness of rebirth that doesn't give you a whole, you know, it doesn't put you into crisis thinking about rebirth. Um, Then, you know, that kind of person is ready to be taught. So then you talk to them about how to select a good teacher. Yeah. In the case of Pabongka Rinpoche's Lamrim, Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand, that text was taught by Trichon Rinpoche, and he gave that as the beginning teachings before he was giving highest class tantra initiation. So again, he's giving it not to just the, you know, average Tibetan Tashi uh, who comes from a Buddhist family, but he's teaching people who you know, are taking highest class tantra initiation who have a lot of background, a lot of knowledge. They're definitely Buddhists. They understand a lot of things already. And so then he, the way he explains the relationship with the teacher is for somebody who's going to enter highest class tantra. Okay? So, you know, really speaking to different audiences here, what's quite interesting, You makes you wonder what kind of disciple was the king because Nagarjuna starts off talking about karma so remember the, the, you know the king is not a westerner he's not going what's karma how do we know karma exists do, if you don't believe in karma does that mean you don't create it you know king's not asking those kind of questions because he he's in a culture where people believe in karma and accept it, yeah? So so he starts out learning about karma, about how to create the cause for upper rebirth, but very soon, Nagarjuna starts teaching him emptiness. Yeah? Now, what kind of disciple do you think this king is that after a few verses... You know, half a chapter, less than half a chapter, Nagarjuna starts in with emptiness. Is the king 
kind of, you know, Mr. Kumar who just walked in from the bazaar? I don't think so. Yeah. So this king must have been a very sharp faculty disciple, yeah, who had done, who created a lot of virtue in a previous life because he was king, so he had power, he was wealthy, practiced generosity, yeah. He had the karma to meet Nagarjuna. My goodness, how much good karma does that create? Yeah. And he obviously had the karma to hear, uh, you know, the deepest view of emptiness right away. He, you know, Nagarjuna didn't start off with, you know, the Vipassaka view or anything like that. He just went boom, you know. There, things are merely labeled and that is it. There's nothing more than that. Yeah. So the king was some kind of special disciple. Okay. But then, so, so Nagarjuna does kind of two chapters, you know, alternating, talking about the highest good, you know, and how to attain liberation, and higher rebirth, which is, uh, contained all the teachings about karma. And then he goes and he talks all about running a kingdom and how to make rest spots so your your uh, you know your citizens are uh, have you know are well taken care of and people have health care and they have parks and you know they aren't overtaxed and they aren't thrown thrown in prison randomly and you treat people fairly and justly, even the people of neighboring kingdoms who have suffered under war, you reach out and help those people, you know? So he then he goes into kind of, he, you know, how to create good karma in this life. Yeah. So he had already, he taught him a lot about the collection of, of wisdom already. But then with the collection of merit, he really goes into a lot of detail, you know, about the signs and marks of the Buddha and what you need to do to create the causes for them. And then how to rule properly so that you don't throw your life away and so that you use your life to create, you know, to accumulate merit, which will enable you to realize emptiness. Yeah. So then he goes into that whole thing. In other words, king, you're not going to get lost in emptiness somewhere. Yeah? And I'm not just telling you to, you know, go and meditate on emptiness. You are a king and you have responsibility. And here's how to deal with your responsibility with wisdom, with kindness, so that it benefits you and it benefits others. And he goes in a lot of exposition on that. He keeps throwing in bits about emptiness. Yeah, if you, you know, remember kind of when he was talking about his pleasure, real pleasure and things like that. And then after he does all of that, then he says, you know, all this thing about royal policy and everything. Then the guardian says, but if you think 
you can't really do all of that royal policy and govern well and still maintain a good motivation, then resign and ordain. Yeah, which kind of is, that comes, you know, that's verse, what, 399, the end of the fourth of, of five chapters. And then, you know, the king's going, wait a minute, you know, what are you telling me? So we don't find out exactly what the king did, but we can kind of guess, yeah? And people may guess different things, yeah. And so then in the fifth chapter, then he sums things up. He gives the practice, you know, the 20 verses and so on. And now this concluding thing. And so here in this concluding thing, yeah, now he goes... And he talks about how to rely on a spiritual mentor. So he's just heard, the king's heard this amazing teaching. Yeah. Do you think he needs to be convinced to rely on a spiritual mentor at this point? I don't think so. You know, he's probably quite devoted to Nagarjuna already. Okay, but Nagarjuna's making, you know, really kind of making sure that the king understands what this is. And I think he's sneaking this in for our benefit too. Okay, but it's interesting, isn't it, that it's at the very end. And it reminds me of Lama Yeshi, um, you know, because sometimes people would come up and... Uh, you know, we didn't have so much access to written material. There wasn't much in English at that time. Yeah. And uh, and so people would hear little bits about the guru here and there. And Lama Sopa would sometimes talk about it. And, and Lala, you know, what does this mean? And it says, see you as a Buddha. Are you a Buddha? Yeah, when we see you as a Buddha, you know, do you have long earlobes? Yeah. Do you have golden skin? I can't see any golden skin, you know. Um, and so Lama, you know, oh, we, we were really a bunch of characters. One of my good friends who um, was a translator for many years for uh, one of our teachers, you know, she was telling me that at the very beginning, you know, she came to Dharmsala and she heard all the stuff about treating the guru. And so, and so she was walking up from the bazaar one day, you know, carrying her sabji, her vegetables and, and things. And then uh, Geshe Nawandarge was walking down the road and she put all of that down and she bowed to him in the middle of the road. Yeah, because she thought, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of what it was like then. So, um, but what Lama said is he said, you know, if you just listen to, to what is taught and you put it into practice and it helps you, if you come and say to me, Lama, thank you, that really helped me be a better, kinder person, he said, that's good relying on a spiritual mentor. That's, that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so he was very practical, very practical. And I think that's actually profound because you can do all this external stuff showing how humble you are, but actually you don't really have much confidence and you don't follow the teacher's instructions very well. But what Lama was saying is you really take it to heart and you practice it and you see that it works. And then, of course, if you see that and you say thank you, that is really sincere. Yeah. And that's much more valuable than, you know, the people who got running around with anxiety and, oh, do you want a cup of tea? Oh, do you want this? You know, can I buy you a Rolex watch? Uh, please, you know, oh, I hope you're not too cold. I hope you're not too hot, you know. So instead of that, you know, somebody who's really taking the teaching seriously and practicing. Okay, so now he's going to talk about relying on a spiritual master. So 491. One who due to his own failings has doubt about a pure, loving, and intelligent teacher who speaks with restraint about what is helpful. Okay, so it's a little bit hard to follow here. Okay, so when it says who speaks about a pure, loving, and intelligent teacher, who, that clause, who speaks with restraint about what is helpful, modifies the teacher. It doesn't modify the one who's the topic of the, the subject of the sentence, okay? But it comes back to the subject of the sentence. So that one person ruins his chances of attaining his aims. Thinking, I am under the care of one who is pure, loving, and wise, and who states with restraint what is helpful. Vow to spiritually discipline yourself, king. Okay? So, here he's starting out with the disadvantages of not properly relying on a spiritual mentor. Yeah? So this relying on a spiritual mentor is a much is a good translation of the the Tibetan term lama tenpa. Lama means spiritual t- uh, mentor, or in Sanskrit the word is guru, and guru means some heavy, so somebody who's heavy with good qualities. And tenpa means to depend upon or rely on. It's the same thing, you know. Pari Rinpoche is teaching tempa tupa, you know, praise to depend and arising. That's the ten. It means dependent, to depend, to rely on. Okay? And so I think that's a much better translation than guru devotion. Yeah, because guru sounds a bit magical and mystical. And devotion, you know, we get all this kind of thing of, you know, Ali Ali Salami kind of stuff, and and then we get all tangled up, yeah. And you know, I I don't hear in any of the, the stuff that I've read, I don't hear anything about surrender to the guru. Yeah, it's about relying on the teacher, relying on the mentor, so that we learn how to generate our own wisdom. Okay, so 
when you hear the word surrender, because I think this was used with a lot of Hindu gurus, you know, who practice this whole thing of bhakti, devotion, so you surrender to the guru, then people thought you just surrender everything. You give your money, you give your free will, you stop thinking for yourself. And that's not how to create a good relationship with a spiritual mentor. Yeah, it's to really learn to, to develop your own wisdom. Yeah, because if you're going to go off and do retreat and gain realizations, you know, you have to develop your own wisdom. Okay. So, if you hear the word surrender, it means surrender our self-centered thought. Surrender our opinion factory. Okay. So, give up the self-centered thought, give up the self-grasping ignorance, give up the, but I think this is better, and why are you telling me to do this? And why are you bossing me around, and you don't treat me the same way as you treat all the other disciples, and I can't get to see you, but, you know, and I give you offerings, but, you know, then you don't smile at me, and, and, you know, all this stuff. It means give that stuff up. (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah we could do some really good skits can't we you know based on true practice (laughs) maybe not true true experience maybe not true practice yeah okay so that's the stuff we're you know supposed to give up but what do we do when we come to a relationship with a spiritual mentor we project all our garbage on that person Okay, especially in the West, all of our emotional neediness goes right on that person who is then supposed to be mom, dad, everybody, you know, everything we've ever needed emotionally, that person is now tasked with fulfilling that. Okay, that's not what it says in the Lam Rim. Okay, but that's what we think. Okay, so that's why, you know, we, we have to kind of learn, well, what, it, what does it mean to properly rely on a teacher? And what, what are the advantages of doing so and the disadvantages of not doing so? Okay, because otherwise we're going to get really, really tangled up. So somebody who, due to their own failings, so not due to problems with the, with the spiritual mentor, but due to our own internal craziness, yeah, has doubts about a pure, loving, and intelligent teacher. So here this verse is talking about there's a teacher that you have checked out over a period of time that you have discerned is pure, loving, and intelligent, You've made that relationship with the teacher. And then, due to your own internal blah, blah, neediness, expectations, opinions, whatever, yeah, then we start uh, doubting that teacher. Yeah. Then that ruins 
our chances of attaining our spiritual aims. Okay? So not everybody who is a Dharma teacher needs to be your Dharma teacher. The people who are your friends' spiritual mentors don't need to be your spiritual mentors, and vice versa. So we're the people who are responsible for choosing our spiritual mentors, and we're the people who are responsible for knowing what kind of qualities to look for in these people. So actually, in verses uh, 492 and 493, which we're coming to, then Nagarjuna will talk about what kind of qualities to look for in a spiritual mentor. Okay. But we do need to see that it is important for us to have a spiritual mentor. Okay. Now, why? Why can't we just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other thing and mix it together and have soup? Because we're so profoundly ignorant. <laughs> we will get lost. Yeah. We will yeah, we will make up our own practice. We will get nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we were so brilliant, we wouldn't still be running around in samsara. Yeah. And if we need teachers even to learn how to type, which is a comparatively easy thing to learn, then how much more do we need good teachers for something that is much more difficult, much more delicate, like working with our mind and transforming our mind? Yeah. So it's not a thing that uh, we you know, we are very profoundly ignorant and left to our own devices, we will develop a spiritual path that basically is whatever pleases my ego. (laughs) You know, whatever makes my self-centered thought happy, then that must be what the Buddha taught. Or that's what must be what Jesus or, you know, whoever it is that we're following taught. Yeah. Um, someone online has made um, a comment saying it's so much easier to not have a spiritual teacher and just be out doing our own thing, making soup. Not beneficial, just easier. <laughs> it's easier at the beginning to make your own soup, but it, after a while it gets really difficult because you aren't getting anywhere spiritually. Yeah. So at the beginning, it seems really good. But at the end, you're stuck. Huh? Yeah, your view is very limited. There's, there's no space to hear some kind of new idea that might broaden your mind. Yeah. But it is definitely easier to just do our own thing. Or, you know, what, what you can do, which makes it look like you're, you're, pract- you're following a spiritual mentor, is you go to one teacher and ask their advice, 
Then you go to another one and ask this advice on the same thing. And then you go to a third and a fourth and a fifth until you reach somebody who tells you what you want to hear. And then you think, I'm following my spiritual mentor. Yeah. But we're just kind of going around uh, collecting opinions. Yeah. Or, oh my goodness, or, you know, if we don't know, like, how to rely properly on a teacher, then I had one woman come to me in Malaysia one time, many years ago, and she said, I've been going out with this man for a long time. Should I marry him? And I said, I have no idea. What do you want to do? And she said, well... When Islama so-and-so was here last year, he told me it would be good to marry this man. But then Lama, this and that, came, and he told me better not. So I'm not really sure whether I should marry him or not. What do you think? What am I supposed to say? You know? I just said, what do you want to do? Do you think you would have a good marriage with him? You know, I am not a marriage counselor. I do not have, you know, special powers to see your future. Okay, so this kind of thing. It was sad, you know, because, you know, she thought that's kind of what she should do. Quite sad. Okay. So, um, so before forming a mentor-disciple relationship, we should examine potential mentors well uh, to see if they have the qualities necessary to lead us and to see if we have uh, a lot of confidence in them, and if to see if what they're teaching really fits with us. Yeah? Because there's many different teachers who teach many different ways of practice, even within Buddhism, and we have different tendencies towards different practices, different approaches, different teachers. So we need to check all of that out. Okay, then we, we form the relationship and you do that by, you can take like refuge and precepts with somebody uh, or take a bodhisattva, uh, the bodhisattva precepts or initiation or something like that. That definitely forms a relationship. In my case, I had no idea about any of this. Okay. I mean, when I met Buddhism, I knew less than nothing. I didn't even know there were different Buddhist traditions or different anything. All I knew is I went to these teachers, and what they said helped me when I practiced it, and it made sense when I thought about it, and I kept going back. And I just kept going back, and that was it. You know, I, I never went and said, will you be my teacher I didn't know anything, you know? I mean, I took refuge, but I didn't even know that that's what, what did it. I knew nothing. 
Yeah, except that this was something very precious that helped me. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Kenza Rinpoche says, the time to look for a potential teacher's faults is before we take that person as our spiritual mentor. So if you're going to pick faults, you do it before you form that relationship. So you really scrutinize, you know, how does the people and keep good ethical conduct? Are they a nice person? Do they speak truthfully? Do they really care about their students? You know, do they know what they're talking about? You know, when they teach, does it match the general Buddhist doctrine, what you're learning? So you check all those things out, and that's the time for you to be really critical. After we form the relationship, then we need to focus on the teacher's good qualities. Does that mean whitewashing their bad qualities? No, because whitewashing things doesn't make them go away. Yeah? You can notice qualities, but you have to ask, is this quality a fault in the teacher, or is this a matter of personal preference for me? Okay? Because we can be really, really picky. And I'll give you an example that I had, my personal example that I had to work through. My teacher, one of my teachers, first of all, I am a morning person. I wake up in the morning. I like doing my practice in the morning. In the evening, I'm tired, so I like to finish things early and not do them like right before I go to bed because I'm tired. Yeah? My teacher, yeah, this particular teacher, um, loves to start things at 10 o'clock at night and go all through the night until 6 o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, stops. And then, you know, starts again because he doesn't sleep. And, you know, and I kind of tried to do this for a while. And I was like, this is not working for me. Yeah. And sometimes I would get really angry, like at about one or two in the morning, because the reason I got angry was I'm so tired that, and I can't pay attention, and this is something very precious, and I'm not showing proper respect because I'm so tired. Yeah. So why do we have to have teachings at this time when I can't show proper respect and can't take them in? Okay, now, is this a problem with my teacher? Is my teacher doing something unethical? Is he breaking precepts? Is he deceiving anybody? Is he lying anybody? Extorting money? No. So whose problem is this? It's my problem that I prefer to do things in the morning, go to bed at a reasonable hour, wake up fresh, and listen to Dharma teachings when I'm awake. Yeah? We have two different body schedules. Yeah? 
This is not a fault of the teacher. This is my preference. Okay? So we have to look. You know, in many times uh, when we can get very angry sometimes with our teachers, are they doing something that's unethical? Or is it that what they're doing is, is not according to my preference, not according to what my self-centered want, thought wants to happen? Okay? So if your teacher's doing something unethical, they're embezzling money, they're sleeping with their students, they're lying and covering up all sorts of stuff, you know, then, you know, you need to go and talk to them and say, this, I've been witnessing this behavior, it's very troubling to me, please can you explain it? Yeah, and His Holiness says that's perfectly okay to do. But you have to make sure that your teacher's doing something that's not ethical. Yeah, and it's not just a difference in personalities or personal preferences. Because part of the thing is uh, why they emphasize so much like trying so hard to get along with your teacher is because if you can is because you have checked this person out beforehand you've decided with a clear mind that you trust them that they're knowledgeable they're compassionate yeah so you've done that work and you trust that person and then if your mind starts picking faults, the faults of a quality of the faults of a person who you've prior you've previously screened in some ways and said this person is pure, loving, and what was the third one? Wise, you know. And now your mind's saying, <laughs> then what's happening to your mind? Yeah? Is this a problem with the other person? Or is this a problem with your own mind? And if you see that this is still somebody that you trust, who is really an amazing teacher, who you who can really, you know, guide you on the path, then you have to find a way to get along with that person. And if you can find a way to get along with that person who has good qualities that you've already discerned, then that's a starting place for learning to get along with all sentient beings. Okay, so you first learn to get along with somebody who you've already checked out, who you believe is a good, honest human being. And you use that relationship to see your own stuff. Because we project our own stuff, not only on the spiritual mentor, but on all the other sentient beings. 
Yeah. If we have abandonment issues, our teacher is abandoning us. Our Dharma brothers and sisters are abandoning us. Our parents abandoned us. Everybody abandons us because that is the lens through which we are seeing the entire universe and describing the entire universe to ourselves. So if we can see, oh, here's somebody who has good qualities. I know they have good qualities. Yeah? And yet my mind right now is putting all these accusations on them. They're abandoning me. They don't care about me. They favor other disciples. They ignore me. You know, they contradict themselves. They tell me one thing, then they tell me another thing. They're inconsistent. I mean, you know all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know all of it. It's, yeah. So I didn't need to repeat it. So all this stuff is going on in your mind. But if you can, you know, but you know the teacher is not doing anything unethical. And you know this is a person who will really benefit you if you follow their teaching, you know, what they're teaching, which is the Buddhist teachings, and their advice. So then you have to find a way to work with your own mind. And if you can do it with that person, then you begin to have a handle on your issues, which you've projected not only on that spiritual mentor, but like I said, on everybody else that you encounter. Including the cats. Yeah, and we do. Yeah, That's why I always joke. Yeah. Oh, I walked up to a peck and he just looks at me and runs away. You know? I mean, I joke a lot about the cats like this, treating them as if they're human. To, to point out, I hope you guys realize I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. To point out, you know, how we think and how we have our own little boxes yeah, our own little set of secure insecurities through which we see everything. Yeah, so one person, it's abandonment. Everybody's abandoning me. Okay, another person is, I'm not good enough. Whatever I do, I'm not good enough. I try and please my teacher, I'm not good enough. I prepare for teachings, they always ask me the question I don't know. Um, I try and do my offering service, but then they come and say I didn't do it well. Whatever I do is not good enough. I'm not good enough. I just can't, you know, fit in and, and everything I do is wrong. And that, you see that with your teacher. And then you see it, of course, with everybody else in the community. And, of course, with the cats, too. I'm not good enough for the cats. Yeah? I want to be friends with Mudita. But she doesn't, you know, want to be friends with me. Yeah. So even Mudita hisses at me, you know. Yeah. yeah. And see, he, yeah. yeah. I can't do anything that makes him happy either because I can't do anything right. You know. And so, you know, you project it on everything, including your spiritual teacher. So then you become aware of those 
patterns and you start working it out in relationship with your teacher. And then that gives you a good start because you already know your teacher is somebody who's a good human being. And then you can start working on that same pattern with everybody else, with all the other sending things. Okay? Or, you know, maybe, I mean, we all have our, our own thing, don't we? How, yeah? And so one person has, has a temper, they just flare up. So who do you get angry at? For you get angry at your teacher. Yeah? One of my Dharma friends uh, was helping one of our teachers with um, a really huge project. I mean, it was a really huge project um, that lasted many years, involved a lot of money. And she told me sometimes she would get so angry at him. And she would yell at him. You know, and that just kind of made me shudder. But, you know, I just would yell at him because he's just, you know... I have more experience about how to do things in the West and, you know, and he's not listening and I have these ideas and I know this and I know that and he's insisting on doing this and this and this and it's, I think it's a waste of money and I don't think it's going to work and I just told him so and I blew up, you know. But she also, you know, at the, at the end of the day, she had rock bottom trust in him. Yeah, so she wasn't on the point of walking out. Some people, their anger gets such that it just gets too much for them, and it's like, bye-bye, I can't stand it, you do everything wrong. Yeah, and they, they're, you know, off. Yeah, she didn't do that. But I wouldn't want the karma of shouting and screaming at this teacher. Um, yeah who was a quite amazing teacher. And he and I had very, very different political views. He thought George Bush was a great president. And he thought he was a good, he was an excellent president because he was strong, you know, and he sent in troops to, to Afghanistan and he, yeah, you know, he dealt with 9-11 well and he, he insisted on, um, human rights, especially in, in Tibet, you know, and he spoke up for human rights in Tibet, you know, so this is a good precedent, and I'm going like, oh my God, you know, uh, okay, uh, but then, you know, I didn't go there to learn politics from him, yeah, and okay, so he likes George Bush, you know, that's not why I went there to learn politics. Uh-huh. Another teacher had certain ideas about women. I didn't go there to learn about gender dynamics from this teacher. I went there to learn about the Dharma. Okay, he has, his ideas about women are different than my ideas. But that's, you know, it's like, that's not what why I went there. Yeah. One of my teachers does everything by throwing mows. I can't live my life like that. 
because the mo changes from one minute to the next. Mo's are definition that you do with dice. So I was trying, I was director of a, you know, a center, and then I would get one advice one day and one advice another. And one, I was like, you know, I, I, I can't work this way. Yeah, because I start on this way, and then, then the Mo said, no, go this way. Then I go on that way, and it said, go this way. You know, but it's like, is that reason to, to get angry and say that's a lousy teacher? No, it's a free world. If he wants to run his life throwing Mo's and asking Peldon Lamo questions, that's his privilege. That's not why I went there to learn. Yeah, that's not what I want to learn. And if that's how he wants to make his decisions, that's fine. It works for him. It doesn't work for me. That's okay. Yeah? I had another teacher. Yeah. Wonderful, incredible, amazing teacher who loved Tibetan tea. Yeah. Who loved eating meat who was very sick, who we tried desperately to please, you know, eat a healthy diet, stop the butter tea, stop the meat with the salt, the dried meat and the salt and this, you know, eat a healthy diet, we want you to live long. He didn't want to do that. He loved butter tea. The more butter on the top, the better. I look at butter tea, I smell butter tea, and it's like, <laughs> you know, get me away from this stuff. Yeah. But did I go to him to learn about diet and what to eat? Does he have to eat what I think he should eat? No, that's not why I went there. That's not what I wanted to learn. And it's a free world, and he can eat what he wants. Who am I? I suggest, you know, all of us suggested to him because we cared about him. Can't make him do anything. Yeah? He knows what he's doing. He's grown up. He's 20 years older than us. Yeah? So, you know, to really, because we can get angry and upset about anything. And everything. Yeah, as I'm sure you you're, you quite know very well. Yeah? Isn't in some way, like, for example, a teacher's preference for food, for example, shows that how much he's attached to things, mm-hmm. like to food. And like, for example, the teacher that you say support George Bush, maybe how much he's attached to his Tibetan identity and he likes Bush mm-hmm. because... Bush is very strong about mm. human rights. Okay, so very good question. So seeing that my teacher does not want to change his diet, is it a fair imputation for me to put on him and say, therefore, he's attached to food? Do I know that for sure, or am I mind-reading? Yeah? If my teacher uh, has a strong thing, you know, George W. Bush is a good 
president because he's, he spoke up to China about Tibetan rights. Yeah. So therefore, yeah, he's strongly attached to his Tibetan identity. So much attachment. How can he teach me emptiness? He has so much attachment to being a Tibetan. Okay? Do I know that? Or am I mind reading? It's your own interpretation. Yeah. My own interpretation, isn't it? Yeah. And look how much I mind read with other people. Look how much I impute motivations on them without asking them if that's really their motivation, if that's really their intention. Yeah. Look how much I think I know what's really going on with somebody. And I think the imputations, they come down to being self-centered because say you want your teacher to eat better so that they can live longer and teach you and help you. Mm-hmm. So that's you know driving it. Well, you could say that's self-centered, but it's also you really genuinely care about them. You genuinely care about them and you want them to live longer. But he's not doing what I think he should do. And I want to control everybody. Because I know. I know what the best way to eat is. And people should listen to me and do what I say. Not just my teacher, but you and you and you and you and you. And the cats, too. I just, I've been working this year on mindfulness. I kind of skipped over that. Shouldn't do that. But anyways, it's been a great help. And one of the things I've realized is one of my biggest faults is thinking that every time I make a mistake, like letting something make a loud noise in the middle of Dharma teaching, that everybody's suddenly thinking terrible things about me. Well, that's oh, mind we reading. All are, you know. I don't know that. They yeah. might be thinking I'm just a wonderful person who made a mistake. Yeah. You know? Or they might might say might not think anything of it. Exactly. You know? Yeah, so that's a very good example, how we do some tiny thing and instantly we go into everybody's thinking bad about me. Yeah, I know it because they have nothing else to think about except this tiny mistake I made. Yeah, so the whole room is thinking, oh, he made a noise during teach. Can you imagine that? Actually, I didn't hear the noise you made because I was listening to the one she made. <laughs> okay. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Back to your teacher and his diet, though. Okay. You, it was a good idea to express your concern uh-huh. and give him some advice. Uh-huh. And it would have been... Um, not great had you just had all of you kept silent right but then he made a choice and some of you probably accepted it and some didn't right i mean the doctor told him this and we just repeated what the doctor said and we said you give us the example of 
the Buddha, the the sanghas, the doctor, and the medicine, and the nurses, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the importance of listening to the doctor's advice. So, yeah, of course, it was good. We expressed our care and affection for our teacher because we do want him to live long and we do care about him. And it's genuine care. It's not just self-centeredness because he can teach me, but we really care about him. Yeah. But can we make somebody else do something? Do I know that he's attached to food? Yeah. Thing that we get seduced with is sometime in our life we sort of put things together and then we decided I'm intuitive. Oh, yes. I'm very intuitive, intuitive right. and I'm very sensitive. Yeah. And I know what you're thinking right now when you're looking at me like that. Yes. I know it. Yeah. 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 This is I'll tell you one. later. Our big trap. <laughs> yes. I'm very intuitive. I'm a very sensitive person. I can read body language very well. So people may try and hide things from me, but I can see by the tone of their voice. I can hear by the tone of their voice, by their facial expression, by their language, by their body language. I know what they're really thinking. No, I'm not even going that mystical and magical. I'm just talking about how, how we think I'm a very sensitive, intuitive person. Which means that person is doing whatever I think they're doing. <laughs> it has nothing to do with reality and everything to do with my self-centeredness because what they're thinking always involves me. Yeah, like you, you know, you were saying, I made a noise, they're all thinking negatively of me. Yeah. I was the chant leader, and, you know, I forgot the second word of the verse. Now everybody is thinking, what a horrible chant leader. We should get that person out of being a chant leader. And that's our little thing, you know. Everybody has, that's our little vision. Everybody, their whole purpose in life is to criticize me. Yeah, that's what everybody's doing. Yeah, they all criticize me. They're all picking faults at me. So we all have our own little thing. So this is the kind of stuff that comes out that you can see in relationship to the teacher. Your teacher asks you a question and you start, what's the word, obfuscating, yeah. Yeah, so you start doing that. You start obscuring it. You start making excuses. Yeah? And it just happens naturally. Yeah? Teacher says something, I'm on defensive mode. You know? I mean, we know this very well. I, with her, I would ask her a question. I wouldn't even say anything. I would say, you know, like, when are you planting the irises? And I'd get an answer like, like what? I, w- I, was doing, uh, I was doing this and I was doing that and I didn't get a chance to. I'm so sorry. And I'll, I'll get it done tomorrow. And I'll, I'll do it after midnight. Ashley, and then I'll turn the, the headlamp on and I'll do it as best as I can because I have to do it. And, and besides, why are you noticing that anyway? 
I'm doing my job. You don't trust me. You don't, you, I, I, you, you second guess me. You doubt me all the time. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and Venerable says, when are you going to plant the iris? <laughs> yeah. yeah? So, yeah? So you, you begin to see, you know, these mental habits that we have that we just, you know, get triggered with everybody. Yeah. Okay. So that's why if, if we, you know, have checked out the teacher and we have some trust, then that alerts us, oh, maybe I have a mental habit here. Yeah. Maybe this is just my M.O. <laughs> yeah, that's coming on that I have to be aware of. And it's not really a problem in the relationship. It's, yeah, my thing. And then, you know, there's all sorts of things, you know. Oh, my teacher asked me a question. I need to sound brilliant. Yeah, she's, she's getting defensive. Yeah. Then the other one is like, oh, well, my teacher asked me, when am I planting the irises? Well, I've done all this research about irises, and I really know that the best time to plant them is this and this and this and this. And then I've also, I've been meditating on the emptiness of the irises. And I've really, you know, seen dependent arising through how that works, the growing, you know, it's not the irises are produced from self, other, both, or causelessly, yeah? And so I've got to appear very intelligent because the teacher asked me a question, you know? I can't just say I'm going to plant the irises later this week, you know? I've got to impress somebody, yeah? So, yeah, so we all have our stuff, don't we? Yeah. And you, you know, somebody says, you know, when are you planting the irises? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I didn't ask you a yes or no question. I asked you, when are you planting the irises? Because you told me you were going to plant the irises. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? The next life. Next life. I'll plant the, the viruses next life. Yeah. This life, I want to transcribe all your teachings about irises. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we, we all have our thing, don't we? How do you work with your mind when you meet all these crazy disciples? <laughs> <laughs> you pull out your hair. <laughs> Yeah, that's why you have no hair, because you pulled it out. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it becomes an amazing practice, because you know the rules are not the same for you. Yeah, they can get mad at you, you cannot get mad at them. Yeah? So you have to work with your mind. Yeah? And it can be really challenging sometimes. At least for, you know, I don't think with my teachers they had so much challenge. But we, I mean, we were a crazy bunch. But they were very, 
spiritually developed, you know. Um, but yeah, it it's it can be challenging. <laughs> I I just do the the techniques I use. I just do the regular thought training practices. You know, I cultivate compassion. I think about karma. Yeah, why is this happening? I must have created the cause for this. Yeah, so I just the regular thought training practices. That's why I think mind training, thought training is so important because those kinds of things apply in every situation and there's nothing better than them. Yeah. So according to what is coming up in my mind or, you know, how I have to calm my own mind so I can think, you know, of how to benefit this person, then I have to see, you know, which one of the eight verses, which one of the 37 practices, which one of, you know, the the seven points, seven point thought training, you know, or which one of the different advices do I need to practice here? Yeah, so it's just knowing the teachings and doing your own practice. Nothing. There's no special hidden advice with that. It occurred to me with these verses that Nagarjuna is not trying to convince the king that he needs a spiritual mentor as much as just show him how he needs to relate to him. Yeah. Which is a different, um, it's part of why it's at the end. Yeah. Yeah, because I think because the king's already seen because Nagarjuna has taught him so much. So the king knows he needs a spiritual mentor. Yeah. But, and he already has faith in Nagarjuna because he's heard all this dharma and thought about it. Yeah. So the king isn't coming. Maybe he might have been new in some ways at the beginning, but by the end of the text, he's somebody who's developed a lot of trust and confidence. And so now he's more open to hearing about the need to rely on a spiritual mentor. So I think he does know, he, he does need to be taught the need to rely, because this again is a king. And if you grew up as a king, you think you don't need to listen to anybody. Yeah? And so to hear that no, having a spiritual man- mentor is really important, also for you who was a king. The verse um, that you mentioned earlier, I think 399, where he, he says if you can't follow all this stuff, then give up being a king and, and, and ordain. I think he's, that's an empow- a powerful verse because he's pointing out that the Dharma is way more important than your station in life, even as a king. Yeah. Can you imagine saying that to a king? Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine somebody in the White House trying to say that to Trump? Yeah, where's that person going to get? You're fired. (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because people in power do not like to be told what to do or to listen to anybody else.